Don't ever forget the message of the sacrificial system. The only way that you and I as sinful people can ever approach a holy God, a thrice holy God, is through sacrifice. And those animals weren't it. They merely pointed to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Have you ever come across parts of the Bible that maybe don't make sense from a modern perspective? For example, sections of Exodus and Leviticus. Why were there so many specific rules and regulations for the Israelites? What were the reasons for all the animal bloodshed? Well, the Old Testament might seem confusing and even outdated to modern believers who are separated by time and culture. But today, Tom will examine two key systems in Exodus and Leviticus that are essential to understanding the Old Testament, the holiness of God, and all that God was doing in and through His people. Open your Bible now as we join our teacher with today's message on the Word Unleashed. When you study the Old Testament, you discover that there are essentially nine major movements or scene changes, if you will, in the Old Testament. If you get these nine, then you understand essentially the flow of Old Testament history. First of all, you have universal dealings covered in Genesis 1 through 11 from creation, either 10 or 20,000 B.C., down to as low as 4,000 B.C., depending on whether or not you believe there are gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, to Abraham 2166. The second movement or scene is the patriarchal period, Genesis 12 to 50, covering from 2166 to 1804, the death of Joseph. You have the slavery in Egypt, covered in Exodus chapter 1, from the death of Joseph to the Exodus in 1446. The fourth scene is the Exodus itself under Moses, covered in Exodus chapter 2 through the end of Deuteronomy, from the Exodus in 1446 So 40 years later, the wilderness wanderings, they show up at the edge of the promised land in 1406 B.C. The conquest and division of Canaan is the next part, the next movement. It's covered in the book of Joshua from those 40 years, the end of those 40 years of wandering in 1406 down to about 1350 or so when the generation that came with Joshua dies, as we'll see tonight. We enter then the period, the darkest period in Old Testament history, the period of the Judges, described in Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel 1-8, to and it goes all the way to the establishment of the monarchy in 1051. The sixth great movement is the monarchy itself, that is, when there was a king in Israel, covered from 1 Samuel chapter 9 all the way through Kings and Chronicles, gives us a different perspective of it. You have two sort of sub-movements within the monarchy. You have a period of time when all 12 tribes were ruled by one king. That's the united monarchy. And then you had a split in the kingdom into the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And that's the divided monarchy covered in 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings. And the, 
the period of the monarchy officially ends in 586 when the southern kingdom, Judah, is carried off captive largely into Babylon. Followed, of course, then, of course, by the Babylonian exile. This really isn't described for us in the Bible, but the prophets prophesied during that time, and we get glimpses into that time from Ezekiel, Daniel, and certain psalms. It lasted from the first incursion by Nebuchadnezzar into the land when he took Daniel in 605 B.C. down to Cyrus's decree that they could repatriate the land, return to their land from Babylon in 538. And the last period in Old Testament history is the restoration period. Covered in Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, it runs from the decree by Cyrus in 538 to repatriate the land, send the Jews back to their, their own country, down to the 400s. And there's some debate about when that is. 414 B.C. down to 400 B.C., somewhere in that range. So there you have the nine movements of Old Testament history. We finished last time in the fourth great movement, the Exodus under Moses. You remember I shared with you that essentially when you look at the journey from Egypt to Canaan, the trip itself took three months to get from Egypt down to Canaan, but then they spent nine-plus months there at Sinai in, in the book of, covered in the book of Exodus, and then Leviticus talks of an events of one month when the law is given. Numbers, you have the wilderness wanderings, 38 years and nine months, and Deuteronomy, two months at the edge of the land for 40 years. So there's your 40-year journey. We're going to talk about how that breaks up tonight. So they, they spend, the point I want you to see here is they spend a great deal of time at Sinai. And during the time at Sinai, after coming out of the land, 400 years of captivity, they arrive at Sinai, spend the better part of a year there. During that year, there are two very important things you need to remember. God gave two systems to Israel which are absolutely crucial to understanding the Old Testament. These two systems occupy the bulk of the last part of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, the first ten chapters of Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, it's recapped for us. Two systems. The first system that God gave them is the sacrificial system. God set up for his people Israel a system of sacrifice. That system we can capture in six foundational truths. If you understand these truths, you understand the sacrificial system. First of all, God commanded it of every person. This is the way to approach God. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, God prescribed five kinds of sacrifice. All five were to be a part of the worship of every Israelite. In addition, four of the five were to be a part of the national or corporate sacrifices for the national feasts. The only exception was the trespass offering. Each of those served a distinct individual purpose. Now, I know you can't read all of that, but notice in the, right, in the left-hand column, there are the sacrifices, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, and it has several subcategories, the sin offering and the trespass offering. Each one had specific designations as to what animals could be offered, and I've laid those out for you here. I'll print these up again this week. I'm not going to take time to go through all of this, but I want you to see that there are these five sacrifices for every Israelite. 
what God was telling his people is that you must approach me only through sacrifice. That is an absolutely crucial point. God prescribed sacrifice of every person. In addition to these individual sacrifices, four of these, all but the last one on this list, the trespass offering, were to be nationally offered as well. When you look at the list of national sacrifices, here is what was prescribed. You can see that every day two lambs were offered for the nation. On the Sabbath, two lambs offered every Sabbath, every new moon. You had seven lambs, one ram, and two bulls, and on and on it goes. When you look at the total of what was offered in the nation, this is not for individuals now, this is just for the nation, for the national sacrifices. In a given year, 101 bulls, 31 rams, 24 goats, and 1,051 lambs every year that Israel practiced the law of God for a total of 1,200 animals offered as the national sacrifices every year in addition to all of the individual sacrifices that were prescribed. It's incredible. But God commanded this to show his people that they could not ever approach him apart from sacrifice. A second foundational truth about the sacrificial system is that the sacrifices were for God. Very important that you understand this. They were not primarily for the worshiper. It was about God. When you look at how it's described over and over again in the book of Leviticus, and I've given you a list of references here, the offerings are described as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord an aroma that soothes the just wrath and anger of God against the sin of man. Understand that the sacrifices were for God to soothe, if you will, his wrath. That animal died as a substitute, as we'll see in a moment. A third foundational truth, not only the God commanded of every person, the sacrifices were for God, but to be accepted they must come from the heart. It wasn't about the fact that you showed up at the temple and offered an animal. God was not satisfied with perfunctory duty. Instead, it had to come from the heart. He puts this a number of ways throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel said to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God is unimpressed with sacrifice. He's commanded you to do it as a demonstration of how you can approach a holy God, how sinful man can approach a holy God. But understand that he is not satisfied with the outward performance without the heart, a heart given over to obedience to him. The prophets over and over again chastise the people of God and tell the people that God is literally sick of their sacrifices. So the sacrifices must come from the heart. The fourth foundational truth about the sacrificial system is that the animal sacrifices were always substitutionary. That is, the animal died as the substitute for the worshiper. 
Now, this is foundational to understanding the sacrificial system. In Leviticus 1 through 7, one thing stands out. That's where those sacrifices are given, the five we talked about. One thing stands out, and that is they are offered in the place of the sinner. If you look at the events as they're described there in Leviticus, the order of events, this is how they flow. If you were an Old Testament believer, this is what you would have done. The worshiper first brought his offering, a physically perfect animal, to the forecourt of the tabernacle. This was referred as drawing near, that is drawing near to God. The worshiper then laid his own hands upon the offering, a physically perfect animal, and he laid his hand upon that offering, implying that it represented him. And then the worshiper, with his own hand, slays the animal, slaughters the animal. And then as the blood pours out of that animal, the priest catches that blood in a bowl. He walks from the entrance to the tabernacle or the temple later. He walks to that altar, a burnt offering there in the picture, and he splatters the blood against the altar. Then the priest takes and burns the specified portion, and that varied but depending on the sacrifice that was being offered. He burns the rest of that animal that's supposed to be burned on the altar. A fire is kept burning there to consume that altar. Of course, in the case of the burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed. Then the remainder of the animal, whatever part was specified by God, was eaten by the priests or by the priests and their families, or in the case of the peace offering, by the priests and the worshiper as kind of a, a, a meal of fellowship together with God, as it were. The point, though, of the entire process of the sacrificial system, and especially the laying of the worshiper's hands on the head of the animal, made it clear that that animal that you're about to kill is dying in your place. You, as it were, are transferring your guilt to that innocent animal, and then you kill it with your own hand. It was a demonstration that that animal was dying, the innocent for the guilty. The fifth foundational truth about the sacrificial system is that animal sacrifices were never the basis of forgiveness. Understand, the blood, and bull, the blood of bulls and goats can never, the writer of Hebrews says, take away sin. It was never about those animals. Animal sacrifices were never the basis for forgiveness. Instead, the sixth foundational truth that I have here on my little list is that animal sacrifices were pictures of the coming human sacrifice of Christ. They were offered in anticipation of that. You say, did the Old Testament believer understand that? Well, that's a question we'll get to later in our study when we look at the, the message of the Old Testament. Now, with this sacrificial system came a group responsible for administering it. It was the priests. The role of the priests, you remember they were from entirely from the tribe of Levi, and they were descendants of Aaron. They were supported by the tithes or taxes of the people, and they were spread throughout the land. They lived in 48 cities, evenly scattered throughout the 12 tribes, four priestly cities in each tribe, each region. And they essentially had two responsibilities. One was maintaining the sacrificial system. By David's time, 
You remember that there were, the priests were divided into 24 divisions, and so if you were a priest, you only served at the tabernacle, or later after the temple was constructed, at the temple for two weeks a year, or one month every two years. There's some debate about how it was allocated. But either two weeks a year, or one month every other year. That was your work at the tabernacle or at the temple. The rest of the time... They lived in those Levitical cities spread throughout the land of Israel, and their primary responsibility was teaching the Bible to the people. Deuteronomy 33.10 says, They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. In addition, the sacrificial element, they'll put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So the priests were intended both to maintain this sacrificial system and to teach the Bible to the people. Understand the the heart and soul of the Old Testament sacrificial system was this, to point to the coming human sacrifice of Christ. Those lambs were innocent. They died at the hands of the guilty. That was the picture, as the writer of Hebrews says, of all that that system was about. If you understand those principles, you have the big picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system that was given by God to Israel at Sinai. And the message, don't ever forget the message of the sacrificial system. The only way that you and I as sinful people can ever approach a holy God, a thrice holy God, is through sacrifice. And those animals weren't it. They merely pointed to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And by the way, That hasn't changed, has it? It's still true today. The only way a sinful human being can approach a holy God is through the sacrifice of his son, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Now, a second system that God gave Israel at Sinai, in addition to the sacrificial system, was the law, the law of God. Now, this is a big topic and one we could spend weeks on. I've done that and probably will do that at some point in the future, but we're going to spend just a few minutes on it here together. Let me give you the sweep of the law of God. First of all, when you look at classifying the Mosaic law, the law given by God to Moses and to the people of Israel at Sinai, you can break up that law into three categories. The moral laws in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, the civil laws, Exodus 21 to 23, and the ceremonial laws, Exodus 25 and following. Now, that's a bit neat and tidy. There is overlap. I'm not saying that there is an overlap in the various categories. There is, but that gives you some feel for the different layers or categories of laws. Now, there are two different ways you can look at laws, the laws given to Moses, or the the way the laws were expressed. There are ordinances. The Hebrew word is mishpatim, And there are commands, devarim. The ordinances are case laws. If this happens, then this must be done. If this happens, then this must be done. Those are called ordinances or case law. Then you have commands. These are apodictic laws. You shall do this or you shall not do this. Those are two different ways of looking at these laws. When you look at the case laws, and that's where a lot of Christians can easily get sort of misled. They start looking at the case law, the if this happens, then this happens. 
For example, the lex talionis, the eye for an eye type uh, command. And they get confused about how to apply that in any sort of Christian sense. Let me just give you the big picture. When you look at the case laws, the ideals that are embodied in those case laws are these. The punishment ought to fit the crime. When we look at an eye for an eye, that sounds vindictive, but you've got to put yourself back in Old Testament times. In Old Testament times, if you stole something, it was not uncommon for both of your hands to be chopped off in pagan cultures around the children of Israel. The punishment didn't fit the crime. But God gives his people a law code where the punishment fits the crime, an eye for an eye, if you will. In other words, the punishment should fit the crime. It also communicates, the case law, the sanctity of human life. As you read those, if this happens and if this person is injured while there's a fight, what you see supported in the law is the sanctity of life. A third principle you see in the case law is restitution or compensation. By the way, there were no prisons in ancient Israel. There was either death for some offenses or there was compensation and restitution. And God says there needs to be appropriate compensation if you have not taken the appropriate measure to protect the lives and property of others. And finally, the ideals in the case laws have built into them a way to prevent the abuse of the system. Just as we do in some, in some ways, our, our whole jurisprudence system is built to, to protect against abuses, to realize that abuses can happen on both sides, on both lawbreakers and those enforcing the laws, because they're all fallen, sinful human beings. There was, in the case of Israel, the prevention of that abuse of the system. So when you look at the case laws, here's, or at the law of God, here are two summary principles. The ethical principles of the Ten Commandments are still incumbent on the New Testament believer. The Old Testament case laws are not directly applicable to us, but they do illustrate ethical principles that are relevant today. For example, we don't have flat roofs on which we have places to, to relax, and if we don't put up a fence, somebody falls off. Our roofs here, you can't even get on if you want to in Dallas. I've tried to get on my roof, and I can't. It's too steep. But in ancient Israel, that was a factor. You reclined in the cool of the evening on the top of your house, and if you didn't make adequate preparation to protect the well-being of those who were up there with you and they fell off, then you were responsible for that. So the principle applies in our day, while the particular case law may not. The principle that we are to adequately protect the welfare of others on our property is the principle that transcends time. Now, when you look at the moral law, let me remind you of the aspects of the Mosaic law, three aspects, ceremonial, that's all of the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the priests and all of those things. Then you have the civil or judicial law. This is, if somebody breaks this law, you kill them. If, you know, here's how the government of the nation is to run. And then finally, you have the moral law those timeless principles that reflect the character of God and that are binding on all people in all time that never change.
And Tom, we examined two systems on today's program, the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law. But as New Testament believers, are we supposed to observe these two systems today? You know, Bill, I'm going to explain that more fully in our next broadcast, but let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. When it comes to the sacrificial system, clearly Christ and ultimately the book of Hebrews makes it clear that he was the fulfillment of that entire system that he is our Passover lamb. As John the Baptist said when he saw Christ in John 1, this is the lamb of God. When it comes to the Mosaic law, it's more complicated than that. Clearly, there were aspects of the Mosaic law that were intended solely for God's Old Testament people, Israel. But there was a moral aspect of God's law encapsulated in the Ten Commandments that is for all time. And it is something that's still very much in play for both unbelievers to show them their sin and for us as believers to point us toward obedience. We'll talk about this in more detail next time. Tune in then. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.